This is the Retail Politics Podcast. Here we strive to give you the best political information about your nation. One download at a time. Here's your host, former congressional correspondent and award-winning reporter, Jerry Shields. Thank you, Dave, and thank you, listeners, for spending another 30 minutes of your precious time with us as we discuss the political issues of the day. And there is only one topic this week, and that is Afghanistan. And I very much appreciate being joined by our guest today, Jeffrey Fleischman, the foreign editor of the Los Angeles Times and a longtime foreign correspondent. Thank you, Jeff. Hey, pleasure to be here, Jerry. Yes, and I know you're in the middle of it, so let's get to it. Um, what are you seeing? Uh, what's going through your mind as you're getting these dispatches from your reporters and uh, pictures coming in from your photographers from Afghanistan this week? Today is the second day in a row we've seen real um, real uh, turn of events. I mean, uh, two days now running, uh, Afghans have, have uh, protested against the Taliban, which was something you didn't see much 20 years ago when they first ruled. So I think there's a couple of things going on. One, uh, one is that the Taliban is, is, wants to show it, it can be a legitimate governing force. The two, it's trying to put down pockets of dissension against it, which it's not used to. So it's in a bit of a PR battle for how it moves forward. And I don't think it's tasked well with handling that. And one of our uh, photographers and journalists today was out uh, covering an event where one of these demonstrations in the capital of Kabul was um, was moving was moving forward and, and uh, Taliban militants raised their guns as if to suppress the crowd or, or force it back. And and they saw uh, our photographer was with another photographer and two Taliban men uh, came up and, and punched them uh, pretty hard, smacked them around, uh, knocked them to the ground. Uh, and uh, the reporters identified themselves as reporters. Luckily, one of the Taliban spoke English and heard Los Angeles Times. And uh, and in a surreal display that really, I think, distills what's going on in the country right now, the guy uh, basically smiled at him and said he was sorry, gave him two monster monster high energy drinks which american forces which american <laughs> forces consumed while they were in, in yeah. the country and and basically told them to go on their way but he wanted him to delete their film and yes. uh which they didn't do but um so anyway that that surreal moment sort of captures a country in, whole, in full right now i think do you think that there's enough um force behind the protesters to do something about that it seems like the taliban has a very strong grip on the country yeah, that's a good point. I mean, the question is, like, like with the the Arab Spring or, or other or other protest movements against regimes, do you have sustaining power? Can it grow from the capital? We've seen it. We've seen it in a couple of cities in the province provinces, but can it sustain itself? And I think the fear that the Taliban had ruled by uh, back in the '90s, if that kicks in, then then those protests may die. But we have to understand that this is a different Afghanistan than uh, than when the Taliban first ruled. There's social media. There's people used to, accustomed to the freedoms that come with American occupation. So um, so this is a real challenge, and we'll see. Ultimately, we're going to see which side wins. Wow, that's a fascinating point when you mention social media because we see that playing out in Cuba right now. So uh, what did you think about President Biden's decision to exit Afghanistan? Uh, that's a, a lot being said about that, isn't it? I mean, back and forth. Uh, I think there, I, I think what we're seeing is uh, that uh, I, I believe that 
this would have happened, whether we had a slow pullout or a fast pullout or whatever. I think what's happening now happened in, in quicksilver, real lightning pace time, but it was ultimately going to happen because the American mission basically failed there. It failed to build a government, a sustainable government that was free of corruption, was free of uh, graft, was and, and was unable to instill a sense of nationhood across the country. And the Taliban were always there. They never went away. They're patient, they're relentless, and uh, and they won, just like they did with, the, you know, just like, I mean, what do they, they don't call Afghanistan the graveyard of empires uh, for nothing. Yeah, for sure. And um, yeah, the other thing I was kind of surprised that uh, Biden was very resolute in uh, coming on television as this, you know, travesty is unfolding and saying, hey, I'm standing by my decision. Were you surprised by that? No, not really, because uh, once you once you once you cross that line, you you own that decision, so to speak. And he couldn't back it up. And I think he I think uh, I mean, the question is, was he preoccupied with covid and 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 a bunch of and, and his infrastructure plan and a bunch of other things and maybe took his eye off the ball a little bit on this, not realizing how fast it was going to be. Um, there, there's significant questioning within the intelligence community is, uh, you know, over whether the intelligence was there or not to, to, to say this was going to happen so fast. But again, ultimately, it, it just really boils down to the failure of the last two decades to, to leave in place a government that, uh, that could sustain itself. And I think that kind of came through to me just how quickly the Taliban took over the country. I mean, it just seemed like there was a Band-Aid keeping this whole thing together um, and, and the, the swiftness of them taking it over. Um, did that surprise you, too? Yeah, uh, uh, it did surprise me. I mean, I, I was of the thought that um, the Taliban is quickly going to move control the provinces and the rural areas, mainly because they control the highways. I mean, and when you control the roads in a, in a country like Afghanistan, you control a lot because there aren't that many big roads. And and, uh, and and if you control them coming out of like Pakistan or other places, you can levy taxes, you can gain income. But I thought, OK, they'll move from province to provinces and they'll come around. There'll be no hurry to seize Kabul. They'll, they'll wait it out and they'll win it by attrition because it didn't want to provoke America or the West or any potential donors down the road. Uh, but all of a sudden, boom, they were there with almost not a shot fired. That's amazing. So, yeah, I was I was surprised that it went that fast. So you're a student of Vietnam. Your father fought over there. You grew up um, young when your dad was uh, was over there. And there's so many people likening this to the fall of Saigon. Um, how do you see it being similar and how do you see it being different? I see it being similar in 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 the passion in the moment of the time. I mean, America, the the uh, the most uh, you know, potent military, potent and powerful military in the world, uh, being relegated to a base, flying people, flying desperate people out. I mean, that's that certainly shows not the not the stature that uh, that America would want to give to the world. So, from that standpoint, there's a lot of echoes of of just the imagery of it, the stagecraft of it, uh, does call to mind Saigon. I think it's more reminiscent, though, an actual tactical and strategic terms of, of what the of what uh, the Islamic State did in, um, in in Iraq in 2014 when it took over a third of the country and then moved into Syria all of a sudden you had 
a militant force taking over and pushing uh, pushing aside in much of that country uh, an American-backed government. And I think there's a lot of echoes to that here. What's so interesting about the Taliban is that uh, is that they took over a whole country again. Uh, we, we saw that with the Islamic State, as I said, in Iraq, but they ultimately failed. We saw it with al-Qaeda in Yemen, but they ultimately failed. So what the Taliban has pulled off, whether they succeed in the long run or not, is a great... Uh, a great inspiration to a lot of militant movements in the region and beyond. Yes, for sure. And I, I think when I always wonder if a war is worth fighting, I think if, you know, whether my, my son's 18, I think, would I be willing to give my son's life for this cause? You've got a son. Um, and um, I remember the movie Lincoln, where Lincoln tried to keep his son out of the war. Um, if that's the question, do you support this war? I don't see, I don't see how, I mean, the, the mission, it, 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 became, it became a war in, in a, remember, to, in, after 9-11, I mean, the mission really to Afghanistan was to, to kill or capture bin Laden, which was, which was, I think most Americans or many Americans would agree after that tragedy that that's something we should do. Then it got muddied. Then it became regime change. Of course, the, the Taliban were intransigent about far as turning over bin Laden. So we didn't leave us much choice, but all of a sudden, just like Vietnam, just like other countries, we got into it. We didn't understand the culture of the people we wanted to nation build around. We allowed graft and corruption to, you know, to permeate not only the, not only the Afghan government we were trying to build, but our own contractors and everything else. So if you're, if you're asking it, do you go, do you want to send anybody's son to a war like that where, 20 years later, trillions of, trillions of dollars later, countless main thousands dead, not including tens of thousands of Afghans, I think most people would say no. Yes. And um, even when they were coming back, I mean, I remember they've always called the Korean War the Forgotten War. But hey, this is the longest war in American history, and I don't think people were really caring about it for a long time. And uh, does that happen here, too, where it's just it's just been forgotten? Yeah, I think so. I think this this war fell off the map for most Americans, uh, you know, years ago. And what's striking to us in the in the news business, I think, or at least somewhat striking, is how the, the, how uh, sustained over the last week the interest has been in this. Uh, that it's back up at the top of home pages and back on the front of newspapers. Of course, it's a dramatic failure by the U.S., but. Uh, but I think it's recaptured the imagination of the American public in a very negative way. And, and once again, they've had to kind of see what was done in their name. Uh, yeah. And, and as these soldiers come back, uh, do they are they ignored? I mean, your father, when he came back from Vietnam, did he go through that where, you know, the people were like, hey, you're the first ones to lose an American war. Um, did, does that happen here with the I, I worried it's going to happen with these guys coming back? Yeah, I think it's. I think in some degrees, it's 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 already happened. If you look at, if you look at both, not only Afghanistan but Iraq, you had so many soldiers doing two, three, four, five tours of duty. So they were like rotating into the kill zone, and ro- and rotating back into like you know Disneyland. Imagine imagine the mental disconnect that these guys faced. I mean, you're going, you're going from a desert or or a mountain ridge where you're risking your life every day and you're being dropped back into a country that doesn't even, is not even paying attention to that war. Uh, so I think these guys in large measure 
have experienced maybe not, I think Vietnam taught America not to disparage its soldiers, no matter how wrong a political mission, don't beat up on your military. I think they, I think that that is what changed how the soldiers are viewed now. That there isn't that you lost this war. It's more blamed on politics and, and, and the government. And uh, But I think for the soldiers, it's just, I was here one moment and here another moment and their universe is apart. How do I reconcile that and move on? And of course, we know many of them haven't moved on that well. Yeah, we talk about the suicide rate among, among veterans, which people say is, is at crisis levels. Is that being driven by exactly what you're saying? Hey, um, you know, we're in, we're in Disneyland one day and the and, and war the next. Is, do you think that's being driven by that? Well, I do. I think a lot of it has to do with that. I think a lot of it has to do with the with the prescription drugs and things these guys are on. I mean, I, you know, you, you you come out of that environment, you're on that sort of strange, surreal merry-go-round, and then and then you're given, you know, you're given these prescription drugs, and sometimes they're good for you, and sometimes they're not, and, and you end up in you know, in altered states to say the least. And you were over there. You you were you've been a um, foreign correspondent for a long time, and we talked a little bit about today about what your folks went through over there. Um, but I I saw that the Washington Post publisher was asking Biden and saying, "Hey, you got to get our correspondents out of there. You got to you got to help us here." And what's it like being over there, and um, you know, kind of having all that danger around you? I think as a as a as a journalist, it's um, it, it's it's different in that when you're with soldiers, you're more of the you're more of the target. You're the, you're, you're a military. You're, you have your guns, your units, and you're, and you're moving through the country. As a journalist, you don't you don't have that cover, which is good because you're not an, an immediate target. But you never know. Just like Marcus Sham, our photographer today, didn't know how quickly it can turn on you. And and situations like that just really um, just really hit home uh, how how difficult it is sometimes to navigate that. You can drive into a firefight and have no and no uh, no inkling of it. You can drive over a landmine and that's it. You can any number of things can happen in a war because nothing, everything is fluid. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think that that's the kind of thing you have to you have to kind of get used to. And I think people forget that, you know, it's one person, but it really ripples. I remember one time when something happened over there and your mother, she called the desk in the middle of the night. Where's Jeff had it? Um, of course, she would have called if you were stationed in Schenectady, New York. But, um, you know, um, it, it's really a, a high impact for families out there. It's it's um, it, it does ripple, doesn't it? Yeah, that was so funny. I, you mentioned that. I forgot about that. But that was like in um, in. Uh, uh, it was in it was in Libya, and uh, right after um, uh, when the fighting was going on before the before Gaddafi went down, and we were out in the uh, uh, we were out in Benghazi region, and uh, the New York Times uh, journalists had just been kidnapped, and there weren't many journalists left in the country, and I was traveling with um, with David Zucchino, and we were both working for the for the LA Times at the time, and and it just really was this eeriness that pervaded pervaded the place and it was the only time my mom ever picked up the phone and she apologized for it profusely she said i didn't want to embarrass you man but i had to make this call (laughs) (laughs) oh jeff your mother called (laughs) i got like you were my my editor at the time carrie howard 
called me on a satellite phone and, and they were trying to get us out of the country too, but we decided we wanted to stay an extra day to see how it all shook out. And I'll never forget the, the voice of, of Kari saying, Hey Jeff, your mom called. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And uh, yeah. the other kids took your school lunch too. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's what you like. Yeah. Yeah. How do you how do you live that down? How do you become like a battle weary foreign correspondent if your mom's phone? Uh, that's amazing. Uh, but really on that on that issue too, and and there was a great quote I, I saw recently where they said uh two thousand deaths are a statistic, but one death is a tragedy. And I remember when you and I were working in Allentown, they sent me to the Dover Air Force Base where they brought back a soldier from the Persian Gulf and it is just such a chilling um it's just a, such a chilling ceremony in a sense. This big old seat one thirty, you know, lays down in this little casket with a flag on it. And you know, that's thousands coming over and each one of those soldiers is a funeral and there's a hundred people at their funerals. So this this really, really does um you know s- spread out and uh do you think people forget about that when they're hearing you know thousands and tens of thousands yeah i i, I think they i think for each family carries that that scar forever and at some points when it's happening the nation grieves over it um at, at certain moments but then it, it, it is it is forgotten and and the sad thing about it is that you know that when you're the country um, doing the war, naturally, you're worried about your own soldiers and stuff. But, you know, it, we often forget about the tens of thousands of Afghans who had, you know, no stake in this at all, other than that they lived in a different geography. And, you know, you're talking about lost generations of, of people. Um, and it's, it's, that's, that's where the real tragedy, I think, comes in, too. Both sides. Yeah, and you've been embedded with soldiers, and I, I've always got—I've always been amazed, even with the Afghan and Iraq soldiers, um, at the commitment of the military soldiers. Um, I remember being in Walter Reed after the Iraq during the Iraq War, and I went to see a soldier there, and he—he he woke up, and he—you know—he said, "Hey, the first thing I did was grab my legs, make sure they were there," which to me was horrifying. But he wanted to be back with his guys. I mean, he wanted to be back there. And um, where does that come from? Where does that mentality? Come come from do you think I'm, I'm sure it's a lot of patriotism yeah i think the patriotism uh, my sense is that the the patriotism is the impetus it's what drives you into the force and you want to serve your country after that it becomes a much smaller much more tightly compressed com- uh, link to the men around you because your world basically in a war in a war, in a war, if you're not in the Air Force, your world is not at 10,000 feet. Your world is a few yards on either side of you, and maybe 100 yards in front of you. And the only guys there watching out for you is that unit, and that—that's why those guys want to go back. I think at that point, they're not thinking of patriotism. They're thinking of, I don't want to be there if something happens to, you know, to to one of their to one of their comrades. I think it becomes more friendship than patriotism. Yes, that exactly is it. And uh, talking about the trillions, we mentioned the trillions that have been spent on this war, but we're still going to be spending more because these soldiers are going to be coming back. They're going to need VA assistant, medical assistance. And they were saying that we're really not going to see that price tag until 2048 as these guys get older. So what do you see happening back here? What's the ripple of that war going to be back here in America, do you think? I think it'll be like just what you said. It'll be this 
this slow seep into we realize uh, how much it costs us when we get when we talk about health care, when we talk about psychiatric care, when we talk about broken families, when we talk about things that that are ancillary to the war, uh, but but will feel the impact of it after all the guns have gone silent. That's right. And so um, as you look ahead over these next few weeks, what do you what do you expect to see unfold? It all comes down really to to the to the Taliban. I mean, I think unless unless something drastic happens to a lot of Americans on the ground who are waiting to get out, I don't see America coming back. Maybe to secure the highway to the airport, which is which is now causing some of the largest security problems there. But um, I think it, it boils down to the Taliban. I mean, you have a group now. A lot of the billions of dollars that are in there from America and other Western countries have been frozen. Uh, you, you, you have you, the Taliban has to pay for a lot of soldiers, a lot of allegiance. It has to run a government infrastructure and businesses that were so far beyond what they were 20, 21 years ago. So how are they going to govern is the question. And how are they going to um, what elements were inside of them? between maybe real more extremist views or maybe more moderate saying, hey, if we're going to get over this, we've got to put on a face that uh, at least the international community feels is legitimate. Otherwise, we're not going to get investment. We're not going to get a lot of a lot of things. So it comes down to what their next moves are in the next uh, in the next couple of months. And, and uh, I think uh, then we'll know. So uh, we've been talking about a lot of uh, sad things, but tell us about the book. You got a new book out. Yeah. 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 I got, uh, I was, um, when I came, when I came living in LA, uh, I was always interested in, uh, in uh, noir, film noir, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the old Bogart and all the Van Chandler stuff, and Dashiell Hammond. And, and I thought, well, I'm living in Los Angeles and uh, it's kind of the heart of noir. Maybe I'll, and I was writing other kinds of books, and I thought, well, I'll, I'll try to, uh, a, 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 like a crime novel. And uh, so I wrote one, and, and I re- it really allowed me to discover Los Angeles. I mean, I, I'd never lived in L.A. until I came back in 2014. So writing the books allowed me to sort of really understand the city, which I've come to the conclusion of you can't understand the city. You just have to appreciate its weirdness. Which is good, and um, mm-hmm. and then so so yeah, I wrote I wrote the first of the of a trilogy of of crime novels. The first one is called My Detective. The second one was Last Dance, which came out um, in November, and then the final one in the trilogy, the LA trilogy, is called Good Night Forever, and that comes out in April. So La- Last Dance, we, we can get that where Last Dance is anywhere on Amazon um, and, and uh, you know ebooks or, or anywhere. Well, congratulations on that! You're getting some great reviews, and uh, you got a book too, there, buddy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're doing okay, you know. That. I'm in your book. <laughs> yes, you are. Yes, you are. You buried, you buried the lead, Jerry. I'm in your book. <laughs> Well, you know, uh, and all those charges were dropped, Jeff. I never did mention that about you. You know, all those charges were dropped. Well, my mom mom called me again and said, you're in Jared's book. What the hell's going on? (laughs) That's very funny. That's very funny. Well, thank you for joining us. I know you're in the middle of it. It's wonderful to catch up with you, pal. And and, and really, thank you um, and your your troops uh, out there, your your photographers and reporters for your service, because um, this story doesn't get told without you. 
is. So um, you keep doing what uh, Richard Ben Creamer used to call the Lord's work, and uh, and we appreciate that. So say, tell mom I said hey. I will, man. I'll say hi. All right. Thanks, pal. All right. Take care, Jerry. Thank you to our executive producer, Mike Gugat, our technical producer, Brad, maybe the Wizard of Pods, Dave, our announcer, and our voice contributing talent, John, the one take Terzis. Uh, voice over Tampa Bay and a special thanks to Jeff Fleischman uh, joining us today he is in the middle of it all and that was uh, that was uh, very nice of him to do that for us and to you we will be back next week with another thrilling edition of the Retail Politics Podcast until then always remember to read beyond the headlines have a great week with the front row award winning reporter Gerard Shields takes you into the vanishing world of print news to a time when stories were reported, not invented or twisted. Imagine you have press credentials in the front row with Shields throughout his decades-long newspaper career, covering political corruption, scandal, and heroics during the critical events of our time. With dozens of Amazon five-star reviews, Shields' latest work, The Front Row, is a passionate study of American journalism while delivering his own invaluable life lessons. The Front Row by Gerard Shields. Available now at Amazon.com.